All right, we are in Mark chapter 13, and I've got a lot to unload tonight. This is the uh, Olivet Discourse, but you're going to hear it tonight like uh, you've never heard it before. We are going to look at this uh, at a unique angle that you're probably not used to, but this is something I have studied extensively, and uh, I believe that if you can get this message, this is going to help you when it comes to studying Bible prophecy uh, there's some very important things that we need to understand about this passage here in Mark chapter 13. So the first thing we've got to do when we look at Mark chapter 13 is we need to remember the last two chapters. The last two chapters. Remember, you know, these the chapters and verse divisions, these are things that are put in there. They help us. But, you know, the book of Mark, it's all just one book. Okay, all these things, they all go together. And we don't just get to separate them and create new subjects just because we want to. Okay, the text needs to, the text can change the subject for us. But a lot of times that's not there. But we think because there's a new chapter number there, all of a sudden we got a whole new subject. And in the last two chapters, it's been all about Israel and their failure when it came to doing their job that God told them to do. We see that in Jesus' triumphal entry. Go back and listen to the last two uh, sermons, and it's been all about Israel and their failure and about how the kingdom is going to be taken from them. The last two chapters, it is dealt we've, it, it, completely about that, about how Israel has failed. The kingdom is going to be taken from you. And so we don't want to think that now all of a sudden we're in chapter 13 and we change the subject, and we're not talking about Israel anymore and them losing the kingdom, and we're talking about our future. You can't do that. That doesn't make sense. That does not go along with uh, you know, what we, what we see here. It wouldn't make sense for it to be doing that. But unfortunately, what most people do, they read Mark 13, and they make it all about the future, about our future. And if you do that, you're making a mistake. So... Those last two chapters, after Jesus told them, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Now think about this. If you're Israel and Jesus has prophesied saying the kingdom is going to be taken from you, and they knew he was talking about them when he gave those parables. It's a pretty common question that you're going to, that would come after that and say, well, so when the kingdom's taken from us, what's going to happen to us? Wouldn't you want to know, wouldn't that be a legitimate question? And I believe that's what we're about to see answered here now something you need to important you need to understand about bible prophecy we got to kind of lay a foundation here before we get into chapter 13 and a lot of people don't get this but often in the bible when a prophet would be speaking the word of the lord he would the message that he was giving it was a very specific message for that generation that had a meaning for them that they understood the people that he was talking to but also contained within that message was another prophecy about something that was going to come in the, you know, in the distant future. And we're going to, I'll show you some examples of that. And it's important that we understand this because if you don't understand this, what you're going to do, you're going to find a passage where it is talking about something in our future, but you're going to make the entire passage about our future. And you can't do that. When you do that, you mess up the Bible. When you do that, you're in danger of teaching some really weird things. And let me tell you something. Some of what I'm going to tell you tonight, you, know, it, you haven't heard it this way before. And I'm going to show you how a lot of these things, have hit, you know, I'm going to prove from history how they've been fulfilled. And a lot of people get their nose out of joint. Well, you know, history's not inspired. Okay, yes, history's not inspired. But you know what else isn't inspired? Your prediction of how things are going to play out in the future. That's not inspired either. In fact, you trying to make today's situation fit with Bible prophecy it is less likely to be right than history of something that already happened. What you think is going to happen it might not happen, okay? Or you know how you think it's going to play out, but how things have played out, okay? Hindsight's twenty twenty. So just remember that because you know it's it's. There so many things have been repeated from the late great planet Earth that some people think that's Bible. A lot of people, how they have played these things out, uh, you know, in their preaching that is not from the Bible, it's from late great planet Earth, that is not that is not inspired. Okay, so just keep those things in mind. We might say more about that, but 
Let me illustrate a few prophecies that have been fulfilled. And let's see how these read and understand that this is often how prophecies read. And I think I believe that's what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 13. I do not believe that Mark chapter 13 is all about our future. I do not I do not believe that. But John 19:36, the Bible says, for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled, a bone of them shall not be broken. This is when they were going to break Jesus's legs, but they saw that he was already dead. And that fulfilled the scripture that a bone would not be broken. So according to John, it was prophesied that not one of Jesus' bones would be broken. Well, let's go back and look at that prophecy. And that's in Psalms chapter 34 and verse 17. It says, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. It sounds like it's talking about righteous people. This sounds like something Israel could have claimed at that time, that if they were righteous, we can cry unto the Lord and he'll hear us out of all our troubles. If, if you lived in Israel back in that time, wouldn't you apply this to yourself? I think we can apply this to ourselves today. It says, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Do you think it's okay for us to claim that about ourselves? I think that's okay. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate righteous shall be desolate. Would you all agree that that had a meaning for those people back then? But yet, contained within that is a statement that was prophetic about the Messiah, wasn't it? But is every single one of those verses necessarily about the Messiah? No, but a prophecy was contained in there. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now we know that verse is about Jesus, don't we? Because that's quoted in the New Testament. And that's how they knew Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now he shall be great into the ends of the earth. And this man shall be at the peace. When the Assyrian shall come into our land... And when he shall tread in our places, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall the deliver, he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, and when he treadeth within our borders. Now, what was that prophecy really about? Ultimately, that prophecy was a, pro, a prophetic passage about the Assyrians that were going to come and take over in Israel. And you know what? That happened. But within that prophecy about something that was in their near future was another prophecy from in the more distant future about Jesus Christ. So while verse 2 is no doubt about Jesus Christ, do we get to make that entire passage about Jesus Christ? No, we don't. It was about the Assyrians coming and taking over. Here's a, here's a good one too. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, wouldn't it make sense that if you're Israel in Hosea's day, you would think this is taught about when we were a young nation and we were in bondage in Egypt and God called us out. Now, if, you, if somebody lived back then and they heard Hosea prophesy this, would we say that they're wrong? No, that's God talking about bringing Israel out of Egypt. But, because it goes on, it says, as they called them, so they went from them, they sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense unto graven images. That happened when they were in the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt. So there's no doubt that prophecy is about Israel during that time in the past. But we also see that when Jesus, uh, his parents, they took him to Egypt. And then it said, so it would be fulfilled out of Egypt have I called my son. So that's prophetic about Jesus too, isn't it? In verse 1, but is verse 2 about Jesus? Did Jesus offer a sacrifice to Balaam? No, he didn't. So we see, you know, and we could go on and on with examples like this 
of prophecies that have been fulfilled. And yet we seem to know how to look at those prophecies and know what needs to be applied to the future and what doesn't. But yet when it comes to the Olivet Discourse, we don't treat this prophecy the same way. We make every bit of it about our future. And I'm telling you, that's a mistake. Okay, It's a mistake to look at this passage that we're going to look at and make every syllable about our future. But you know what? It's also a mistake to make every syllable about the past. You can't do that either. That's not how that, that's not how that works. Both positions are wrong when they do that. That's what the preterists do. They try to make every bit of it about the destruction of Jerusalem. But then we have Jesus coming in the clouds and they're saying that happened. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Well, how, how do you know? Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So future prophecies like this are often what we would call dark sayings. They can be difficult to understand. But here's the important thing we need to understand. And that is when these things are happening or after these things have happened, it's always clear to those that are right with God. And it's God that reveals those scriptures. It's God that opens those things up. Many of the things that Jesus prophesied to his disciples, they did not understand them because the Lord had not revealed them yet. But after his resurrection, all of a sudden, the scriptures came alive to these guys. When they really needed it, they knew, they understood it. And I'm telling you, when it comes to end times prophecies, when we really need to know what the mark of the beast is, we're going to know what the mark of the beast is if we're right with God. I, I believe that with all my heart. When you need it, you'll know it. What does 666 mean? I don't know. But when I need to know it, I believe I will know it. I, I, I really do. So what I want to do in this message tonight, though, is focus more on what this passage meant to Jesus' disciples and that generation and how it applied to them. And so I do believe it is appropriate to use these things to teach about what is to come. But the key to a proper understanding of this passage is understanding what it meant to the original audience. When you get that, if you come across something that's a little confusing, like they which be in Judea flee into the mountains, you know, you're not going to be trying to apply that to us today, where a lot of people do. And they try applying weird things to us, pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath. Well, man, I really hope this stuff doesn't go down on a Saturday. You know, I mean, no, there's a reason Jesus said that. But, you know, you don't need to worry about it. But they did. Okay, they did. And we'll talk about why. And so these words, they were, they were spoken to them. It was spoken to that generation. It was a prophecy for that generation. But that does not mean there is not something here for us. Okay. And just because there's something here for us does not mean there was nothing for them. We all get that? We all understand that? Or do I need to spend a whole message on that? I don't want to do that. I want to get to Mark chapter 13. All right. So keep all those things in mind. And so it says in verse 1, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And there, there's no doubt, and everybody agrees, this is a specific prophecy that everyone would agree was fulfilled in 70 A.D., uh, when the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was burned down after a three and a half year siege. The Romans, they had to get through, there were three different walls. I mean, Jerusalem, historically, you can read about it. Josephus writes all about it. And I do not believe Josephus is the 67th book of the Bible, but it was a very well-protected city. They, they did not want the Romans ever get to that temple. They had three walls that they had to get through to, to get to that city. It was very well, it was very well protected. And it was a, it was a great fight that was so brutal, that was so long that the, uh, that, that Titus, who was the one that ran that, he didn't even want them to destroy the temple. But what, according to history, what happened, there was just some of the soldiers that were just so angry of all the blood that had been shed and everything that had happened that when everything was going on and they kind of penetrated that area, they went and they just burned it down against orders. And when they did, there was so much gold that was in there that all melted and went down in the cracks and crevices of everything. When the Romans took that area over, they stripped everything down to the foundation to get at all that gold. And just like the Bible says, there wasn't one stone left upon another. They tore that thing down to nothing. And if that wasn't fulfilled in 70 AD, in 132, 
A.D., there was another great revolt where a false messiah, Simon Bar Kokhba, showed up and, and had another siege. About, I think about half a million Jews died, and that over a million died in 70 A.D. But when that whole thing happened, the emperor during that time, he wanted to remove the memory of Jerusalem from the face of the earth because they were tired of all these revolts, and they literally plowed over Mount Zion. There was nothing left. They plowed over it, just like Micah prophesied that Zion would be as a plowed field. And then they built a temple to Jupiter there, and then they changed the name to Palestina, which is why we got the name Palestine, trying to remove the memory of that area there, just like the Bible prophesied. You know, the Jews never did forget about it, but the Romans tried to remove any memory of that. And so this thing that, so this prophecy starts out with something very specific of something that happened in that generation. Everyone would agree this happened in that generation. That phrase was for them, for that generation. It says, and he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled. So they want to know, when is this temple going to be destroyed? When are all these things going to be fulfilled? Like what things? Like the kingdom being taken from them. You know, about all these things that God is, or Jesus has been prophesying against Jerusalem, they want to know when these things are going to happen. And Jesus proceeds to tell them. He is referring, I believe what Jesus is talking about here, primarily is the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the age, you could say, or the end of the world, okay? Now, the Bible, when it talks about the end of the world, okay, what is it, what does the end of the world even mean, okay? How many has ever watched an end of the world movie, okay? Now, let me ask you, does the world ever really end? No. There's always a group of survivors, but you know what it does? It starts a new era. It starts a new age because everything's changed. Things have just kind of been reset and understand that when Israel was destroyed, that was basically the end of the world for them. You know, and they were, that was when they were officially done for. And that ended, uh, that was the end of the world for them or the end of that age and kind of a new era came in. And uh, we're in that today. And that's why, I think that's one of the reasons too, you know, we start counting our years from the time of Christ. You know, we're 2021 A.D., you know why? Because a new era came in with Jesus Christ. A new world came in with Jesus Christ that the world recognized. And as much as people hate to admit it, the, every time you say it's the year 2021, we're admitting that we are we have entered into a new age. A new This is a new world, a new era. So verse 3 says, and he said, uh, or we already, we already covered this one, uh, verse 5. Says, and Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. Alright? Is he talking about us getting deceived or them getting deceived? He's talking about them getting deceived. Because they were going to face the things that he was talking about in here. It says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. And this, this very, these very things happen in that generation. And, and, the, and even in the book of Acts, we see some evidence of this. We even see evidence of these things. Many of, many of the things that Jesus talks about here, the Bible tells us these things happen. The Bible records these things is happening during that generation. We'll look at some of these as we go through there. And so he said, uh, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. And history and the Bible records all these things happening in that generation. I mean, we don't see like the earthquakes and things specifically. But in Acts chapter 11 and verse 28, it says, and there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwell in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas 
and Saul. So it was prophesied there was going to be a worldwide dearth during the time of the book of Acts. And often in Paul's writings, you'll see him referring to taking a collection for the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. Why is he doing this? Why is he taking up this collection? Because there was a famine and they were struggling, especially in Jerusalem during this time. And it was something that was prophesied that was going to happen. This very well could be one of the things that Jesus was talking about. That famine, it was something that really hurt Jerusalem. And the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. It refers to it. There's a lot of allusions to it uh, or alludes to it in the Bible. But history talks a lot more about it. And you can see, sure enough, there was a great famine in Jerusalem during this uh, during that first century. And it says in uh, Romans 15, 25, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. So right there he's showing, we gotta go, we're helping these poor saints in Jerusalem. Well, why couldn't the rich saints help the poor saints in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was poor, all right? They're, these guys were the ones that were doing all right, and they were able to give, and they could be a blessing because Jerusalem was going through a difficult time. And just like it mentioned in Acts, it was kind of Paul and Barnabas's job to take up these collections, to get what they needed, so they could be a blessing to those back at Jerusalem because they were they were going through it a lot. And there's more references. We're not going to take time to go through all of them. So, but in verse 9 in Mark 13, it says, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Now, can anybody tell me where we can read about this kind of thing? We can read about that in the book of Acts. Now, let me ask you, now, I'm not going to say it's not possible, but, I mean, chances are none of us are probably going to get taken in synagogues and beaten. Okay? I, I, I don't see that happening uh, to us in this generation. I, I don't even see that really happening so much in the tribulation. It might. Okay? You know, it might. But here's a fact. This happened. Okay? Paul dealt with this kind of stuff. It was always the Jews that were push, pushing this persecution on the church we can read about these things in the book of Acts, and you can read about it in history. Uh, and so in, verse, in Mark 13, 10, it says, And this gospel must first be published among all nations. Okay? And now, and uh, say, well, that's in the future too, right? Because we're going we're gonna to do all those exploits in the future. We're going to get the gospel in all the world. Well, I, I do think we're probably going to do some good things. I do think too, again, there could be something here for us that it, maybe we're doing, you know, we do it again during that time. But here, here's the thing. It's, this is primarily speaking about that generation. And this happened. Colossians 1.23 says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That's pretty impressive. That first generation got the gospel to the whole world. You know what? We should be ashamed. That first generation, let me tell you, it put us to shame. It's putting us to shame still. Even with all the technology and all that we have, there's still so many places in the world, there are so many people in this world that have never heard the gospel. And so, you know, I'm not 100% convinced we're going to do this again. In the tribulation, not when we see a falling away prophesied. So I, I'm, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm not going to get dogmatic about it. I think we get too dogmatic about a lot of these things, and we use this as our authority. But wait a minute, that's mainly talking about what happened in the first century, in that generation. We see in Romans 10:17 says, "So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God." But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth. And their words unto the end of the world. Ends of the world. So, the gospel went into all the world, folks. And let me tell you something. The gospel went into all the world. And this is another subject for another day. And the world is responsible for what they've heard. Oh, what about all these countries with all that, you know, have idols and they, you know, they don't know any better. They 
had the gospel brought to them and they rejected it. They, at the time of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The, I don't care what idolatrous nation that's out there today. You know what? The gospel got to that nation before, and at some point they rejected, and you know what? It's on them. It is on them. The gospel got to them. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get it to them again. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to reach this generation too. But understand, God is not unjust if these people all go to hell, never having heard the gospel. The gospel got to that nation at some point, and they rejected it. So there's no excuse for anybody in the world. And, but at the same time, uh, that does, you know, that does, just because they reject it doesn't mean we can't try to give them another chance. That's okay. But don't let people use that argument to make it like God's not merciful. No, they heard. They had a chance. All these countries that are in the mess that they're in today, because of their false gods, they're there for a reason. They're there because they rejected the gospel. They, that first generation, they got the job done. So the world is responsible for where they are at right now. So uh, we see in Acts 17, 6, it says, When they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Why are they saying that? Because these people, this stuff that they're preaching, they've been turning the world upside down with this stuff. You know what that means? They, they've been getting this to the whole world. They're shaking up the whole world. That's what that first generation did. What an amazing time that must have been. What an amazing group that was. So Mark 13, 11 says, But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. And you know what? We see Paul doing pretty good when he was standing up against men like Agrippa. We see God did this. God did this with these guys. In, in that generation, these type of things happen. We see them boldly speaking before kings and ready to do it. Paul was ready to go to Rome. Paul was ready to face off of these people. He saw every one of these things as an opportunity for him to get the gospel to these national leaders. Why? Because they're trying to reach the nation. If you're trying to reach a nation, it would help if you can get the guy on top. And they and that's what they did. That's what they tried. Verse 12 says, Now brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and the children shall rise against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And you know, what's one thing that's very interesting historically about this time, and we do, we see betrayal going on. We see all these things in the book of Acts. But it, historically, when this siege was taking place, remember, because this thing, it took years for uh, the Romans to finally take over Jerusalem. It was very well fortified. But one of the things that killed them, one of the things that the Romans said, the reason that they, the only reason the Romans were able to win that war is because of all the infighting that was going on. While they were being attacked on the outside, they were all fighting each other on the inside. There was a civil war that was going on inside there to where they're killing each other. And the Romans even admitted, if these guys would have united, they, we probably never would have been able to win. But... These Jews, they were wicked. You had the different sects in there. You had the sects, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the, um, the Zealots. And, you know, and before a lot of that stuff went down, too, you had the Christians. Because one thing that's interesting, and we see this also in the book of Acts, you had different sects of Jews. And they all claimed the Torah, they all claimed the temple, they all claimed, you know, Jerusalem, and they all you know, like to fight with each other, but at the same time, they did all live amongst each other. So you had the Pharisees that believed in the resurrection. You had the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about them, even though it mentions them. You had the Zealots who, they wanted to take over the world. They wanted to fight the Romans. You know, that, uh, that, that was the Zealots. That's probably one of them I would have been if I wasn't a Christian. But then you had, but then after the time of Christ, you had Christians who also stayed in Jerusalem. Because if you're a Christian and you accept Jesus as the Messiah, why would you just all of a sudden give up that temple in Jerusalem? I mean, aren't you still following the Old Testament if you follow Jesus? Well, of course. And, and we see that during those early days in the book of Acts, they didn't want to leave Jerusalem. God had to bring in persecution to get them out so they would go and reach the world with the gospel. God didn't want them staying local anymore and being that light 
and, and Jerusalem being that light, that God, God no longer wanted an earthly headquarters. We have a heavenly headquarters now, and God wanted them taking the light to the whole world. But God had to send persecution to get them doing that, but there were still a lot of Christians that stayed around during Jerusalem during, uh, during that time. And so, and keep, and keep that in mind. As things are gearing up, as it becomes clear that the Romans are coming for us, that at some point we're going to have to fight or we're going to be destroyed, during that time, there were Christians that were, uh, that were still in Jerusalem and they had a decision to make. Do we stay and do we fight for this early temple, earthly temple, or do we leave? And, and according to history, what uh, and so this is this is what history says. When the Romans finally came in and took things over, all the Christians were gone. And they say it's because of what Jesus said. When you see all the when you see Jerusalem compassed about with army, know that the desolation is nigh. You know, they that are in Jerusalem, flee unto the mountains. Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath. Why is that? You know why? Because they closed the gates on the Sabbath. They needed to be able to get out of there. And there, and during that time, there was, you know, the false prophets that were there saying, let's stay, let's fight. God's going to deliver us. But there were Christians that were speaking up and saying, no, this is what Jesus said was going to, was coming. We need to get out of here. And according to history, there were no Christians in Jerusalem during that time. And according to historical sources too, all right, I, hate, I hate preaching history from the pulpit, but I'm telling you, it's history, all right? I'm putting out this disclaimer. There were many different miracles that happened. In fact, that, uh, that eastern gate that took, I forgot how many men to close because it was so large, it kept blowing open. And nobody could explain that. They say there was a time too when, the, when a wind came through the place, it came into the temple and a voice was heard saying, let us leave this place. There were all kinds of signs and things that happened. And the Christians said, you know what? We need to get out of here. And that's exactly what they did. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting stuff to read. Um, it's not Bible, but it, it's still interesting. And it's really interesting too when you're reading this stuff. It's like, this is exactly what Jesus described. You can't, you can't deny this stuff. You, you can't, uh, and, and there's no doubt from reading this, this is something, there was something here for that generation. So, uh, uh, verse 14 says, but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them which be in Judea Flee into the mountains and let him that is on the housetop not go down to the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let them which be in the field turn not back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and them that give suck in those days and pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened those days. Okay? And some could say, too, that was how Jesus had all those signs to get those Christians out of there. It was shortened for them. Those ones that stayed in there, they got to endure that tribulation, and they were destroyed. So over a million Jews, according to history, uh, they were destroyed. And you say, well, what was the abomination of desolation then? Okay, and, and again, I do believe there's something in the future here for us. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But I'm going to show you, you know, where I get dogmatic and where I don't. But you can read about this too. Historically, during that time when the Romans were taking over, they were doing this everywhere where they were, uh, whoever the emperor was at that time, they were putting his image up all over the place. And it was even commanded that they put one in the temple. And they did they put one of his images in the temple and in Fox's book of martyrs, when you read about it in there, it calls it the abomination of desolation. So it's like, you know, these things, you know, that were very similar to what we're reading. They happen during these times. It's very, it's very interesting. There's no doubt. There's something here that was for that generation. I believe that's what this was. And so, so when the Christians saw all these things happening, they're like, we, we got to get out of here. 
This is what Jesus said to do. He said to get out of here. And it says, and if then, and then, if any man say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. And according to history, there were, again, there was conflicting things going on. You had false prophets that were rising up and they were telling people, stay. You had the Christians who were saying, we got to get out. And the Christians got out. And the Christians, they weren't there when these things took place. And there are a lot of the stories of things that happened. You know, a lot of them are really strange. And it is. It's interesting. It was a three and a half year period too. It was a three and a half year period where these kind of things went on. It started in 66 AD and it finished up in 70 AD with that destruction of the temple. And so in verse 24 says, but in those days, okay, in those days when all these things are happening, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. Okay. Now, notice how Mark calls it that tribulation. Okay. With a lowercase t, not an uppercase t, like the tribulation, which is what scholars have named Daniel's 70th week, and they made it all about something in the future. Okay. Now, listen, don't freak out and go run out of here. I do believe in a coming tribulation. Okay? I do, but I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm going to tell you why. I believe in a, in a coming tribulation in a little bit before you get too scared. But I do believe when he's talking about that tribulation right here, he's referring to that tribulation that happened back in 70 AD. I do believe that's what he's talking about. He's referring to that tribulation. So there's nothing for us? Well, no, because I do believe it was a foreshadowing of something that's to come. And I, and I think I've got proof for that. But at the same time, would you not say a million Jews dying in Jerusalem after three and a half year siege is tribulation? That's tribulation, folks. I don't care what way you spin it. That is tribulation. And you know what? In fact, you know what Paul, uh, he told the church, since the Jews were troubling them, God said, I'm, he's going to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And you know what God did? God sent a tribulation. That tribulation that took place back then during that time. There's no way around it. So it would appear that after that tribulation of 70 AD, that there's another event that's going to take place that is prophesied many times in the Old Testament. We see the sun being dark and the moon turned to blood. We see that mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament. But notice how no timeline is given. It just says after that tribulation happens, we have this other event that it mentions, the sun dark and moon turn to blood, that's something that they would have been familiar with because that's mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament. And it says, so it says in verse 25, and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now, folks, the preterists will never convince me that that happened. Okay, And I don't care what Josephus said. I don't care what Eusebius said. I don't care what Tacitus said I don't, about the sign that they saw of chariots running around up in the sky during that time where nothing happened, I do not believe that was the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. I, I do not believe that. I do believe that all of a sudden now, we are in the future. I, I, I believe that. Now, so Preterist head will explode when he hears. But look, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 27. How, how, do we, how do we make this all make sense? And, when he, and then he shall send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. That never happened. That sounds like a rapture. Sounds like a gathering together. And now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily, verily, verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Okay? Now notice that the prophecy, it was, it was for that generation, right? And, you know, and we can't deny the fact, okay? We can't act like it doesn't say that, okay? But what do we do with this, all right? And I think we can kind of get a key here in the next verse. In verse 31, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Here's what you've got to understand about this passage. 
this passage or this prophecy is about at the end of an age or the end of that of physical Israel. I do believe that's what this passage is about, but we need to also remember that they are being replaced by another nation, by another people. Okay? There, and we see that from the last two chapters. We can't forget that. We can't just all of a sudden, you know, make this chapter, you know, put it all by itself. No, we got to look at it in light of the previous chapters that we've seen. And so that generation that the kingdom is take is taken from, that generation, 40 years later, all these things happened to them. They were destroyed. They were over. But we've still got one more thing that needs to happen, and that's that sun, moon, and moon being darkened, uh, sun being darkened, moon turned to blood, and Jesus gathering the elect. When, so when does that happen? Well, Jesus said that that generation wasn't going to pass till all those things are fulfilled. So the generation that saw those things come to pass, that judgment come, they're not, they're not going to pass away. Therefore, it all had to happen first century, right? Well, not exactly, because uh, look at verse. Well, let's let's read the rest of the chapter here. Verse thirty-three says, or verse thirty-two, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no not the angels that are in heaven, neither the Son, but the fa- or, uh, Father. So what we've got to remember, uh, this prophecy. It's about the end of the age, the end of the physical nation. We also need to remember they are being replaced by a spiritual nation or another generation. And so here's the question. When did the church pass away? Remember what Jesus said? He told Peter, So thou art Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That age of the Jews, it came to a destructive end, didn't it? It ended. But that generation that rose up this spiritual generation, what happened to it? You know what? It's still here, isn't it? We are a part of it. What Israel was replaced with is still here. Y'all understand that? And so I believe what Jesus is saying here because he goes on to say, no man knows the day or the hour. We don't know when this timeline is going to end. We don't know when Jesus Christ is going to return. In fact, Jesus said, I don't know when he's going to return. But I think when he's saying this generation shall not pass, I believe what he's saying right here is this new age, this new generation, this new people, they will be here until Jesus Christ comes back. And I believe that the church will be here until Jesus comes back. There will always be a group of saved, baptized believers that are, that are following the word of God, teaching the word of God until Jesus Christ comes back. What was there before, that nation of Israel, it ended. It was destroyed. It was over. What Jesus started and what began in that first century is still here today. Now, when we think of a generation, we want to make it all about ourselves. We want to make it all about me. But it's a, understand, it's about the church. And it doesn't end. And it does, you know, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. We see that Jesus referred to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, I am the God. Why? Because he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Those of us who are a part of the church, we're always here, aren't we? Even though physically we might not be here, what we are a part of will always be around. And so I believe what Jesus is doing right here, because he's speaking, this is a, this is a great mystery here. Something that they don't understand. A timeline that even Jesus didn't know. And what I, I believe what he was doing here is he was basically just showing them when he's saying that this generation that that new group that rises up that replaces Israel, it's not going to pass till all these things happen. You all are worried about the temple being destroyed. You all are worried about this end of the age, about the end of these people that you love, that you're a part of. Well, let me tell you something. This new group that's coming up that I'm replacing them with, they're not going to pass till these things are fulfilled. Those that endure to the end, they'll be saved. They'll be here when, uh, you know, they'll still be going. When I return, when Jesus comes back, there will be a people. There will be a spiritual nation 
that is still left. And so I believe that that age started, that new age started in that first century, the same century the nation of Israel was destroyed. And during that tribulation, uh, they were, it was destroyed during that tribulation, and we are still here. The church is still here. Paul told, Jesus told Paul, who, uh, or uh, Paul told uh, the Philippians, who were under persecution, who wanted the work of the Lord to go on, Paul told them, he which hath begun a good work in you, referring to the work that they were doing of advancing the gospel. Not the work of salvation for them as an individual. I preached about this when we went through Philippians. He said, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus told that church, what you are doing, this work will go on until the day of Jesus Christ, until he returns. And you know what? We are still, we are, we are fruit of that ministry. We are still here because of what they did. Their work has lasted. It has went on. It has not died out. The church will never die out. No matter how hard the devil fights it, okay? He took care of Israel. They took care of Israel. Israel got destroyed. But you know what? He's been trying to destroy the church for 2,000 years, and he never has, and he never will. When Jesus Christ returns, we will still be here. So he says, take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Okay? We don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come back, but I do know this. The church will be here when Jesus comes back. I don't care what kind of persecution rises up. We will not be like Israel. We will not be destroyed. That's not going to happen. When our tribulation comes, okay, they're not going to finish us off. We're, we're going to go up with the Lord. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So the church cannot make the same mistake that Israel made and fall asleep and fail to do their job. What was their job? We look at that. It was prophesied in Isaiah. They were supposed to be a light to the world. They were supposed to be getting that, that gospel to all nations. They didn't do it. They were shutting people out of the kingdom. We can't be doing that. We can't be shutting people out of the kingdom. We need to be bringing the kingdom to them. We need to be bringing the gospel to them. And if we don't, okay, so what's going to happen if, if we don't, okay? Obviously, we don't believe in a universal church. We believe in local churches. But I do believe that we are a legitimate local church. Well, what's going to happen to us? Okay, the church is going to go on. But what will happen? What, what could potentially happen to us? Well, if we fail at getting the gospel out, if we fail at doing our job, if we start shutting people out, you know what? We can get our candlestick removed. I believe that can happen. We see that in the book of Revelation. But you know what? Somebody else will be getting the job done. There will always be a church here. We are not guaranteed as Liberty Baptist Church to be here until Jesus Christ returns. But the church will be. There will be somebody doing it. I just And I hope, I hope we're one of them. So I said, you know, and no matter what happens, even if this church messes up and gets its candlestick removed, you as an individual can go on and be a part of another church that's getting the job done. And, and thank God for that. But I, I'm here to tell you, I do believe that what we're seeing here, Mark 13, is mainly about the past. Okay, so what about the future? And I'll just briefly touch on this. Here is my main blueprint for what is to come it's not the olivet discourse okay my main blueprint for what is to come is the book of revelation the book of revelation it was written 20 some years after the destruction of jerusalem it was written in, in 90 some a.d that was written to seven churches so guess who that message is for not israel uh, in chapter 4, we don't see the church mentioned again. Shut up. It, all of it is to the seven churches. Okay, This is a message for them. This is something that they need to be paying attention to, something they're watching for. This isn't about Israel. And so that is the main blueprint. Now, here's the thing. When you look at chapter 6, 
we do see, you know, wars, famines, all that kind of thing. And so, again, I don't think there's any doubt that there is a prophetic element to the Olivet Discourse that fits in with what we see in Revelation. And so it's okay to use that. I think we see the abomination of desolation. We see the Antichrist uh, giving life to his image and setting up in the temple. We see all that in the book of Revelation. So there's no doubt what, when we're reading in Matthew chapter 24 that you could say that, yes, there is an application for the future. But you know what? We don't need to try to discredit history and act like there wasn't something to that image being put up in the temple you know, and that this has nothing to do with that, that it's only about the future. We don't need to do that because we see that throughout the Bible where prophecies kind of had a dual meaning. But the mistake that a lot of people make, and we make fun of the Rugmanites for this, they go back to the Old Testament prophecies where it's prophesying the restoration of Israel and they make it all about 1948. Like, no, actually that was about what happened after the Babylonian captivity. That was fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah. But then they'll find one passage in there that's like a messianic passage, and then they make it the whole thing about the future. And that's ridiculous. You can't do that. And I'm afraid we do that sometimes. We make these things exclusively about the future, and we ignore what those things meant during that day, and then it causes us to get tripped up and confused. And then we don't know what's going on. And then the preterists come along, and they make some sense in what they're saying about you know, 70 AD and how these things all fit. And then we're like, oh, yes, Jesus isn't coming back. No, yeah, he's coming back. There's no doubt about that. He's coming back. And so what we need to do, though, is you should always make your main blueprint for what is to come, the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ written to the seven churches. Don't make the book of Daniel or Old Testament prophecies. There are things in there for us but always interpret those things in light of the book of Revelation. That is the key to getting these things right. And so hopefully uh, that all makes sense and will help you understand uh, some of the more difficult passages in the Olivet Discourse. And don't ever let anybody convince you that Jesus Christ is not coming back and that there is no resurrection of the dead. You better believe if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen and our faith is vain. Jesus is coming back. And we will rise one of these days. And I'm looking forward to that. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that this message was clear. Uh, I pray that uh, you'll help us, Lord, to uh, you'll use it to just help us understand Bible prophecy a little better. And I pray, if anything, it just makes us more exciting, excited about your uh, return. And I just pray you encourage folks' hearts with it. In your name we pray. Amen.